tells you what Connie should expect in and from the world in general as she walks in fellowship with her Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at what Jesus says about how to handle hate, how believers, and put your name in the blank if you're a believer in Christ, should think about and respond to hatred directed at us and our faith in Christ. Uh, Fifty years ago in America, preachers used to warn us, you know, things could change around here and it could become more difficult. And we're, we're rapidly in the midst. And Henry Kissinger, when he was working for President Nixon, used to say, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean I don't really have enemies. And uh, I think most preachers, especially anybody as old as I am, kind of develops a persecution complex, but, uh, which is not all good. But um, uh, face it, our culture is rapidly marginalizing us and vilifying us. Uh, for a long time, the elites disagreed with us. Now the elites say we're wrong and we're dangerous. We're wrong and what they're believing is evil. And so we're rapidly getting to the point where we're going to see more and more discrimination, marginalization, and uh, even probably worse. So this is a very, very important passage for us, and not just if you happen to live in North Korea or Myanmar or Sudan. It's, it applies to us very much so. Uh, as our custom, we like to pray not just that we'll be teachable to God's Word, but we want to remember those who are making sacrifices for us on a daily basis. We think of our firefighters and our peace officers and especially our active military. And that's a collage of several that we know personally or are praying for very actively. So let's pray for teachability uh, to this passage. And uh, David, I want you to pray uh, for our troops, peace officers and firefighters. So David Stribling. Yeah, for some strange reason, I seem to teach a lot better after David prays for me. I mean, just it's funny how that works out. Uh, in this world, we're going to have tribulation. We're going to have trouble. That's a Bible promise nobody wants to claim, and this passage today emphasizes that. And that brings us to our uh, weekly exercise to kind of warm up our capacity for abstract thought. Five shocking signs there's big trouble in the royal marriage. Now, let me remind you, TBF is not the only church in town that uses wacky top five, ten lists. This was actually from the uh, newspaper a while ago, but Emmanuel Baptist Church tried it. They only did it once. <laughs> but uh, I'll let you read that. But reasons people don't go to church, 
Uh, they'd rather sleep in my own bed than in a pew. You know, uh, during organ music, I start craving ballpark, ballpark hot dogs. I feel guilty enough already, stuff like that. So, but anyway, let's, let's go to the mind, you know. Five shocking signs there's big trouble in the royal marriage. Uh, number five, they argue constantly about which one of them is the prettiest. <laughs> it's a problem. He's having trouble fitting quality time with her into his grueling zero-hour-a-week work schedule. <laughs> they can't decide which one of them should be the first to appear on Dancing with the Stars. Number two, they have counseling sessions with Dr. Phil three, day, uh, three times a, a day and eight days a week. <laughs> Thank you, John Lennon. And finally, uh, last week they made the tough decision to live in separate palaces. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, a difficult topic, and, uh, you know, and some people say, we don't want to have children because we don't want them to grow up in a horrible world, and, you know, I feel like uh, the worldwide Muslims, you know, every Muslim uh, marriage produces like eight or nine kids, so I would encourage you to do what the Scripture says, go into all the world, be fruitful, and multiply, especially if you're on the back row back there, so... Just let you know. So I think we're going to have to uh, flood the world with Christian kids uh, long term. And it will happen in the millennium for sure. But, you know, I, I heard people say that, and we only had two, so we didn't really help all that much. But, uh, you know, I look, at, I look at Cooper and Lincoln and Vivian and Peter, my four grandchildren, and I go, wow, you know, they're going to have a rough ride. They're going to have a really rough ride. Clay, you're going to have a rougher ride than your parents did uh, just because of the way the culture is vilifying us and what we believe. And how do you respond to that? We don't, we don't fight hate with hate, but we've got to be wise. And so our passage breaks down, and our passage is verses uh, uh, 18 of chapter 15 through 16, 6 today. But uh, what we should know about three things. Uh, what we should know about when the world hates us, what we should know about why the world hates us. And then the last portion is what we should know about why Jesus warned us the world would hate us. So we're going to use that as our outline. Let's look at verse uh, 18 first. And uh, it says, Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, that's first class condition in the Greek. That means if and it will happen. And we would translate that since really in, in idiomatic English. Since the world hates you and is going to hate you. That's a gnomic statement there. Uh, you know, you should know. I want you to remember that it has hated me before it hated you. Uh, if and when the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. And to the extent you associate with me, they're going to hate you. Now notice very carefully, uh, Riley, it says, if the world hates you. And a quick quiz uh, if you're just starting from scratch, what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you think of the word world? Well, I tend to think of really cool satellite pictures like that. I just love that kind of photography, and I just, I just love uh, astronomy and all that kind of stuff. I don't know that much about it, but I find it very fascinating. But you've got to be careful to interpret the Bible using the terminology the Bible's using. When it talks about the heart in probably 99.9% .9 of the cases, when the Bible talks about the heart, is it talking about your most important muscle in your body? 
No, it's talking about the seat of your mind and your will. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's probably, that's not what I want. Uh, yeah, the word of, I'm going through the Rolodex of my uh, heart passages. Uh, uh, the word of God is alive and powerful. There it is. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Sure. <laughs> sword. We may have to just close in prayer here, I'm telling you. Uh, word of God is alive and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and as a critic of the thoughts and the intents of the, say, the heart in the Bible is not used medically, it's used metaphysically for the seat of your mind and your will, which we would say is function through your brain today. Uh, same kind of thing with the word world. I see the word world, and I think uh, of that picture, but really, the, in these contexts, the world doesn't talk about the planet, but the people, specifically the set of those who have not received Jesus Christ as Savior. And let's just do a, a little top seven list of Bible information about what you need to know about the world. I'm using my notes from your um, bulletin insert there. Number one, 1A, the world doesn't know Christ. That's the problem. Look at chapter one of the Gospel of John. Man, I just love this first chapter of John. It's just a literary masterpiece, and the theology is just out of this world. And uh, you need to really kind of key on what he says at the beginning of this gospel to really help you get the most out of the rest of it. But Gospel of John chapter 1, look at verse 10, talking about the Lord Jesus. He, the creator of the universe, <laughs> second person of the ontological trinity, he was in the world. And the world was made through him. Now we're talking about the planet for the first couple of statements. But watch this. Now we shift. In the world, not the planet. The planet doesn't have mind, will, and emotions. The people who reject God's grace do. And the world did not know him. How amazingly unbelievable that the Creator's walking around and most people don't notice. He came not just to the world at large, but to his own, the Jews, who had the Scripture, had all the prophets, and by and large, there were many exceptions, but the vast majority of the Jewish folks in his generation uh, did not receive him. But here's the good news. Even though most of the world misses it and doesn't want it, as many, each individual who does receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. That is to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood. We're not talking about a second physical birth, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So the first thing we need to know about the world uh, in these theological contexts is it doesn't know Christ. It, it does, has, uh, people in the world, unbelievers, have not received the gift of salvation through Christ. 1B, and yet Christ came to take away the sins of the world. That's the way John the baptizing Jew identified him. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And 1C, John 3.16, God so loved the now, that doesn't mean he's looking at the planet and saying, I love that, I made that, that's really a nice piece of work, and it is. Privileged planet, very, very unique in the whole universe. But God so loved the set of unbelieving folks who were rejecting his grace, and that includes all of us at one point, right? Um, that he gave his son that whosoever believeth in him. So the world is not the planet in this context, it's the people who have not received us Christ as Savior. Number two, second thing I want you to know about the world, Christ and Christians are in the world, but not 
of the world. That's important. He's going to emphasize that in our passage this morning. Uh, Number three, A, the world does not have the spirit of truth. Look at chapter 14, 17. I'm talking about the spirit of truth whom the world, the set of unbelievers, cannot receive by money or church attendance or being a nice person because it does not see him or know him. But you, that's all y'all, the 11 uh, disciples, know him because he abides with you and will be with you. Uh, 3B, uh, and we're going to see this next week in detail. It's really, it's, so what's God's response to the world? Condemnation, just condemnation after legitimate rejection. And to get people to where they're savable, the Holy Spirit works to convict the individuals in the world of S-R-J, which stands for sin, righteousness, and judgment. We'll look at that next Sunday. Fourth thing I want you to know is the Bible, several places, calls Satan the prince of the world. I do believe Satan is real. He's a spiritual being. He's invisible. He's very intelligent, but he's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent, and he's a defeated foe, and I don't think Satan spends a lot of time in Duncan, Oklahoma. As much as I love Duncan, Oklahoma, and I know some of you think, well, he spends all his time in Las Vegas. Now, he, he doesn't, he very seldom goes to Las Vegas. New Year's Eve, he goes there. He spends a lot of time in Washington, D.C., and I don't care who the president is, right? And Afghanistan and uh, wherever ISIS is, he spends a lot of time with those people. You know that. Uh, The fifth thing I want you to know is the world has kind of an innate hatred of Jesus and therefore who he really is. They tend to redefine him. And those who love him, that's kind of the premise of our passage this morning. Number six, look at 1 John you got the Gospel of John in the front of the New Testament, 1 John, the first of three letters, epistles, that you're going to find in toward the back of the New Testament. It was really fun to see Henry uh, yesterday kind of connect the dots on the term epistle because uh, we had a biblical test, and he wasn't sure what that means. But, yeah, epistle is kind of an old word. It's just a fancy word for letter. And, and you're saying, what's a letter? I, get, I know email, but what's a letter? It's when you write things on a sheet of paper and you mail it. You know, we don't do that as much anymore. But uh, look at 1 John, the first of three letters, epistles, that the apostle writes toward the end of his, his career. Uh, look at 1 John 5, verse 1, and then we'll drop down to verses 4 and 5. You've got to love this. Whoever... Whosoever believes in him, that's the guy who wrote that down. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb of God who died for our sins and rose again, is born of God. That means Buddhists who believe can have eternal life. That means Methodists who believe. That means Baptists. I mean, even Baptists who believe that Jesus is the Christ are born of God. I mean, that's how incredible this is. Drop down to verse 4. For whatever is born of God... That is, those who believe Jesus is the Christ, overcomes the world. What does that mean? Well, this is the victory I'm talking about. It's overcome the world, our faith that Jesus is the Christ. And what that means is, Scott, the world is happy for you to believe anything about Jesus, but that he's the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life. That's what the Christ means. Not a Christ, but the Christ. So we tend to think that people who are unbelievers are always outdoing, you know, molesting children and robbing banks and saying bad things about Jesus. And a lot of religious unbelievers, a lot of irreligious unbelievers 
say lots of nice things about Jesus, really nice things. We'll say more about that in a minute. But they want you to believe anything about Jesus, good, bad, or indifferent, but that He is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, so whatever is born of God overcomes the world. In other words, you believing Jesus is the Christ uh, overcomes everything the world's going to try to get you to believe about Him. For who's the one who overcomes the world but the one who believes that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God? So faith in Christ overcomes the world, and the world wants you to believe anything about Jesus but that. Number seven, and last thing I want you to know about the world is not every individual unbeliever is a horrible person. There's a lot of human virtue. Everybody's got the image of God in them, marred by the fall, but uh, as James indicates, inherently valuable uh, because they're creations of God. Not everybody who's an unbeliever is uh, angry at Christ or even Christians. There's a lot of unbelievers out there that respect us at at certain aspects of Christian faith and, and so on. But, you know, at its worst, the hatred of the world toward Christ, who He really is in Christianity, is persistent, active, ugly, and can become mega-violent. Uh, you know, last week we uh, recognized the uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and just that week I got uh, a journal from one of the organizations that talks about the persecuted church, and it had a, a big symbol on the front of the, the journal. It kind of looked like a, an, a, a, a capital letter O that didn't close up at the top, uh, which looks like an Aleph in Hebrew almost, but it was the Arabic word and letter for N, and the point of the story was that ISIS-type people are painting that letter, which would be equivalent to RN on the doors of Christians because Jesus is the Nazarene, so they're using that letter N to identify Christians so somebody can come back and, and torture and kill them. And many Christians in northern Iraq, uh, until you get to the Kurds, the Kurds uh, are Muslims, uh, but they're very much more tolerant than your average uh, Arab about Christianity. But yeah, uh, the world can get mega violent, and in fact, the statistics are scary. There were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than all the other centuries put together. Now, that's a function of how big Christianity has gotten. It's like one-third of the population in the world defined very broadly. But it's, it's a, a horrible thing. Now let me emphasize this. Uh, unbelievers aren't the boogeymen. There are a lot of wonderful people who have not come to faith. And uh, as long as there's life, there's hope. If you had met the thief on the cross about a week before the crucifixion, and he wasn't a thief, he was a terrorist murderer person, uh, you would have thought he was hopeless. He's the kind of guy who broke all Ten Commandments on a good day for him, you know? Uh, and so you never know what's in store for individuals. But I don't want you to be afraid of individuals who are unbelievers, but I want you to know there's at least two basic types. And this is me, not Dr. Ryrie or Pentecost, so this is just the way I see it. Uh, irreligious unbelievers, W-A-T-W. And I'm not going to waste time telling you what that means because I know you all know what that means. <laughs> Woman at the well. Woman at the well, John 4. Uh, irreligious unbelievers are not necessarily atheists. Atheists uh, would fit that category. But uh, these are people that have no personal interest in spiritual things or at least nothing that deals with biblical Christian things. Okay? That's one type of unbeliever. The other type of unbeliever this would be 
NTAP. Anybody got an idea about what that means? Uh, that would be Nicodemus the aging Pharisee. So, yeah, so we've got John 3 and John 4. And I've often, you know, compared those two different people from different poles that Jesus interacts with and basically says the same thing with different metaphors. But religious unbelievers would be people who are personally interested in spiritual things, but the object of their faith is flawed. Uh, the world wants you to believe anything about Jesus other than what the Scripture says He is and was and will be uh, the Savior, the exclusive issue of eternal life. Uh, and so uh, there are a lot of folks, in, including irreligious unbelievers, who say nice things about Jesus. They're not crazy about Christianity. And the, the typical explanation is Jesus was a wonderful first century enlightened social reformer. He would, today we'd call him a community activist. That's what uh, a lot of people think. Or uh, Muslims, uh, Muslims believe in Jesus. Uh, you know, Isa is, is where they say his name. And uh, they're fine with Jesus. They just don't like Christians. They would say, in fact, Jesus was the greatest prophet of all time, except for Muhammad. But he was just a prophet, nothing more. Uh, and so unbelievers can say a lot of nice things about Jesus, but they tend to water down and redefine who he is and they just don't get the gospel. The gospel is the fact that all of us break our own standards, much less God's at our worst, so we've got a problem. We can't fix it, but because Christ paid the debt, the moral, physical, metaphysical, uh, I should say, debt that we owe God because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And in fact, earlier in the Gospel of John, he says in Jerusalem, Unless you believe I'm the Christ, you're going to die in your sins. This is how important this is, <laughs> right? Uh, at the end of the crucifixion, he says, it is finished. Those three words in English are one word in the original language of the Gospel of John, 1930, where you'll find it in John, telestai, which means what? Paid in full. People would write that or print that on bills of sale after you bought a donkey or after you had your uh, horse shoed. You know, they would just uh, write that down. We found that on prison sentences after you paid your debt to society. They put tetelestai there. So that's a shout of victory and completion, mission accomplished. The atoning sacrifice uh, for the sins of the world was finished on the cross. And yet it's important to emphasize what? Jesus died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. He was literally, bodily, supernaturally, sorry Richard Dawkins, world's greatest atheist, we can't reproduce this in a laboratory for you. It was a miracle. Uh, the tomb's empty because a bodily resurrection took place, not just a spiritual, somebody thought they might have seen a guy who looked like Jesus two weeks later, right? And so, you know, this is a nice schematic diagram. What Christ says about himself, I am the uh, way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, must mean there's only one bridge between a sinful human being and a holy God, and that bridge is the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that's what's so offensive to the world. And in a world that increasingly uses the term uh, diversity and inclusiveness, uh, there's one type of diversity they will not tolerate. There's one type of inclusiveness they don't want uh, to include, and that would be those who dare to believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's where we are, okay? So uh, verse 18, Jesus is saying what you should know about when the world hates us. It hated him first, and it still hates him, and to the extent we 
identify with who he really is, the world's going to hate us. Uh, verses 19 through 27, let's move to what we should know about why the world hates us. This first two obviously overlap. Look at verse 19. A couple things going there. Number one, because believers are in the world, not of it, which means we're just organically different than unbelievers. He says, if you were of the world, the world, the set of the unsaved, would love its own. But because you are not of the world, you dare to believe I'm the Christ, the Son of God, but I chose you out of the world. And there he's talking specifically to the apostles about the choice of their service and identification as the founders of the church, humanly speaking. Because of this, the world hates you. We're just inherently different. And I think part of the challenge is, uh, Clay, as you grow up, part of the challenge is when you go to, now are you going to A&M or the Naval Academy? Have we decided yet which one you're going to? Okay. Hey, kind of a good day for the Aggies yesterday, huh, in the football field? That was nice. Uh, a bit, you know, for people who are reared in Christian homes, the, the big question is, you know, uh, when you're really little, little kids, Mavis, when she starts talking and stuff, She's going to believe whatever her parents tell her to believe. She's going to have implicit faith in her parents' faith. You're not saved by believing mommy believes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That doesn't save you. Believing mommy saves that, believes that. You're saved when you go from believing in your parents' faith to believing on your own. And for some kids, that can happen pretty quick. And some of them, it takes a while. Like my dad, he was like in his 70s before that had him, happened to him. <laughs> so it may take a while. But the big challenge is, uh, is you come to faith in a Christianness, which is what should happen, and you go from believing your parents believe this stuff to literally believing in Christ yourself. But then the big question is, how much are you going to identify with this when mom and dad aren't around? In the locker room, at the college campus, on your first job, in the military. And a lot of people, a lot of us, uh, started becoming kind of chameleons right, in the world. In the locker room, we talked one way, and at Sunday school, we talked a different way, right? So that's the, that's the battle. And you find out to the extent you identify with the world, some of the best-looking chicks are not believers and aren't looking for a believer to go out with, you know? So sometimes there can be some, you know, uh, immediate gratification for not identifying with the side you're actually on, um, and that's the temptation we've got to overcome. And that's why it's important to know all this stuff Jesus is talking about, this kind of hatred we're going to face. So what should, we, what should we know about why the world hates us? Well, we should know that we're hated in part because we're in the world but not of the world, but we've got to live that out so people can tell the difference. Verse 20, because the world hated and still hates Christ. He says, remember the word I said to you. When did he say a slave is not greater than his master? We talked about that subject matter back in chapter 13. Look at chapter 13. Still in the upper room discourse, right? So he's referring to previous things he just talked about. Look at, uh, and I'm not superstitious, but man, when you're saying turn to 13, 13, that gets my attention, I'm just telling you. But hey, Clay, it's bad luck to be superstitious, okay? So don't, don't do it, man. Look at John 13, 13. Jesus says, and what's he doing? He's washing their feet, right? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. I outrank you. You're right. Good. You got that one right. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, kind of a, the lowest form of social servitude at the point in that culture, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I'm not asking you to do stuff I 
didn't do it myself. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Now, Clay, I'm not picking on you today, but how the, how, I, I want to find out how the swim meet went later. Okay? And you're sitting right in front of the coach who knows all the techniques you need. But, hey, I was the oldest son in four, and you're the oldest son of three. So I, I always thought I kind of outranked my siblings. My oldest sister never understood that, but I technically still do outrank her. But uh, he's saying, look, I outrank you guys, and I'm willing to serve you. And that's a function of his fellowship and submission to the Father's will in his setting there. And he's saying, if I do that, you ought to be willing to do that for one another. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the sender. And then he says, and this is a big premise of the Upper Room Discourse, it's not enough to know all this stuff, all these principles, you got to do them. It's a functional thing. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So go back to where we were, uh, 15, verse 20. Uh, remember I told you a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Christ, they're going to persecute you, Christians. If they, kept my, uh, if, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. The, the world hates Christ, so it's going to hate Christians to the extent we identify with him. So are you going to identify with him or not? Uh, we've already talked about the fact that uh, uh, a lot of folks who hate Christianity uh, manage to say a lot of nice things about, about Christ. Increasingly, however, with this group called the New Atheists, um, and Richard Dawkins is probably the leader of the New Atheists, nothing they're saying is new. They've got the same old arguments, but as I say, rather than seeing the opposition, especially us, as different and backward, now they see us as perverse and evil. And so increasingly, some of these cats are saying that Jesus was a bad guy. But the culture hasn't gone so far out of kilter that they readily receive that. It's a lot easier for them to say, well, Jesus was fine. It's just the disciples got it all wrong. They made up a bunch of stuff, and they wanted to be in charge of the church, and, and they wanted to make a lot of money and get rich and famous, which none of them did. But they got famous, but the hard way, you know, through martyrdom. Uh, look at verse 20 and tw 21. Why the world hates us? Because we're in the world, not of the world, because it hates Christ, and because, and here's the most important, most generic reason. Bottom line is the world does not know God by definition. They know about him, but they're the set of the unsaved. They haven't come to faith yet. Some will, some won't. And he says in verse 21, uh, but all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because of me, because and to the extent you identify with me. And, and that's because they don't know, know in the sense of relationship. Uh, in a physical sense, the King James says things like, Adam knew his wife and Eve, you know, became pregnant kind of thing. You know, know means that kind of physical intimacy. Now we're talking about spiritual intimacy. But all these things they're going to do to you, uh, for my name's sake, because of me, because they don't know the one relationally who sent me. Now I want you to notice as we read through this section, look at verse 22 and 24 especially, and then let's come back and try to explain what the Lord's saying in context here. He says, verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, and he's thinking about people he's talked to in person during his ministry, they would not have sinned. Whoa, what does that mean? But now, because I've talked to them in person, they have no excuse for their sin. 
Now, verse 23 is almost like a parenthesis. He who hates me hates my father also. Then verse 24 picks up and repeats what 22 said. If I had not done among them, he's talking about his miracles, his teachings in Galilee and Judea and his ministry, works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me for my words and my works, and they're hating my Father also, even though they claim, the Pharisees claim they love God the Father. But they have done this to fulfill the word which is written in their law. He's thinking about the religious leaders' hatred of him. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, I will send, uh, whom I will send to you from the Father, that's the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify, testify about me. And you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Now look at verse 22 and, and 24 again. Uh, number one, th- those two statements are twins. And you can't, Connie, you really can't understand 22 unless you connect it with 24. But it seems to be a pretty radical thing here. Jesus says, if I had not come personally and walked around Galilee and Judea for three years, if I had not spoken to them in small groups, large groups, they would not have sin. That'd be pretty cool, not to have any sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, uniquely messianic miracles and directly affirming that he was the Messiah, they would not have sinned, but now they've both seen and hated me and my father also, so they have no excuse. When I see the word sin there, I'm thinking about all my hang-ups, all my areas of weakness and theirs, and thinking, wow, if they hadn't seen Jesus, they'd been fine. No, doesn't say that. He's talking not about sin generally, but of the specific sin of seeing him face to face and still rejecting him. Um, it's in li- exactly analogous to the uh, what's called the unpardonable sin. He, this is really uh, him referring to the dynamics he describes in Mark 3. Go to Mark 3, where we talk about and learn about the unpardonable sin. I've said this several times. As a little kid, you know, I got saved at age 9 and probably at age 12, I found out there was something in the Bible called the unpardonable sin. And I thought, i got to find out what that is because, hey, if it's possible to do it, I've probably done it. And if I haven't done it yet, I sure don't want to, right? The unpardonable sin. So that, that gets your attention. Uh, and if you go back to the first part of Mark, chapter 3, um, verses 22 through 30. That'd be a, just a good passage to know where it is, because that does come up sometimes. But when you look at this, uh, long story short, uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they had a big problem, because you've got this guy who has not gone to seminary, who's preaching all over the nation, drawing big crowds, and seemingly doing messianic miracles. So what are they going to do? And the people increasingly are looking to the leaders in Jerusalem who tell them what the Bible means to tell them who this Jesus guy is. So they've been sending observers to look to figure out what their position is going to be. And their position, the the official position of institutional Judaism, not all Jews are terrible, we're not anti-Semites, but the official position of temple Judaism uh, about the ministry of Jesus in his day was, of course he does miracles, we can't deny that, but he does his miracles in satanic power. He's not the Messiah, he's a satanically possessed false prophet. Now that was really a nice... uh, 
cover story for them because it totally explained away the source of his miracles, which they couldn't deny. What's, Rich, what's Richard Dawkins in the 21st century going to say about the miracles of Jesus? They didn't happen. We're 21st century people. They didn't happen. Maybe Jesus didn't even claim to do it. The guys met him up later, or he was just sleight of hand, okay? So today, 2,000 years later, you can just say none of that stuff we believe in happened if you're a skeptic. But the problem, and, and listen, the Pharisees and Sadducees would have loved to be able to say Jesus wasn't really doing miracles. He was just faking it. They didn't do that. They have to deal with the stuff he's actually doing. So they come up with what they think is a cover story that will let them keep their power, and it's based on a total deliberate repudiation of who Jesus is to dare say he is a demon-possessed false prophet. Now look at verse 22 of Mark 3. The scribes who came down from the home office in Jerusalem, this is the official detail after deliberation, going to proclaim their position on Jesus publicly. They were saying to the crowds, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain and to the Wizard of Oz, right? There is no wizard, just a guy pulling levers. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, this is what the deal is. He, Jesus, isn't the Messiah. He's not the Christ. If anything, he might be the Antichrist. He's possessed by Beelzebul, which is a term for Satan. And so he casts out demons by the rule of demons. It's just, it's just a pantomime. It's just a pretend thing. They're just pretending uh, that he's benign, but he's not. And then he responds to them. But what I want you to see is the key to understanding the unpardonable sin in context is the last two verses. Verse uh, 28, 29, 30, let's read for context. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit in this sense, how, is, how are they blaming, uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Jesus was empowered by God the Holy Spirit, and they're saying that's not the Messiah empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's a satanically possessed false prophet. They're saying the Holy Spirit in him was the spirit of Lucifer, that's why he's talking about that in those terms. So you can forgive all kinds of sins. Anyone who believes is forgiven. But those who deliberately not only not believe, but repudiate the source uh, of my power and who I am, deliberately, persistently, categorically, is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark, as an editorial under inspiration, so you won't miss the point, uh, he's saying that because they, who are the they? the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, the home office, right? Because they were saying Jesus the Christ indwelt by the Spirit of God was a satanically possessed false prophet filled with the un an unclean spirit, right? You follow all that? So Jesus says whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit uh, in this way never has forgiveness because they were saying Jesus wasn't indwelt by the Spirit, wasn't the Messiah. He is an anti-Messiah indwelt by Satan, right? So that's kind of a general kind of description of what this is. Go back to John uh, 15. Uh, this is just a specific example, I think, of Jesus saying, the folks who have seen me and deliberately, categorically repudiated me, they are guilty of the unpardonable sin, deliberate rejection of me as Savior. Uh, and I've given them so much light, they've got no possibility of any kind of uh, rational excuse whatsoever. Uh, but look at verse 25. He says, but don't panic, believers out there, because this was foreknown. We, 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 this is part of the deal, and this is not a surprise for me, but they have done this 
to fulfill the word that was written in their law. You can jot down Psalm 35, 19, Psalm 69, 4, and look at those later. But those are passages that talk about this idea the Messiah will be hated without any just cause. And then he says, and to help clear this up so that generations in the future can get the right stuff and have the truth to respond to, if they will, when the Helper comes, and we saw him referred to earlier in the discourse, the Holy Spirit coming, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you, that's all y'all, the apostles who will preach the truth that will be the foundation of the the, uh, church and who will write most of the New Testament, you all will testify uh, also through the Holy Spirit because you've been with me from the beginning. You can give a clear, accurate eyewitness account that's inspired in what people need to know. a lot of us who are non-charismatic theology, uh, theologically wise really uh, camp, and I think appropriately so in verse 26, when the, when the Helper, when the Holy Spirit comes that I'll send to you, uh, He will testify about me. Some of us uh, who fancy ourselves as theologians think that some folks, some of our brethren in the charismatic movement tend to focus too much on the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to come to get the focus on me. And then Colossians says that it's God the Father's good pleasure that Jesus be preeminent in the church. Of course we talk about God the Father. Of course we talk about God the Holy Spirit. But the focus, the pivot of the church is Jesus Christ. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the church age, according to Jesus, is to testify about Jesus. So that's just for what that's worth, okay? Uh, Let me just say this uh, before we move to chapter 16 briefly. Contrary to secular expectation and sociological uh, prognostication, uh, the 20th century did not see a decrease in world religion. It saw a massive increase in world religion. Religion worldwide is not dying. The world is more religious today than it's ever been. And Madeleine Albright, who was Secretary of State for President Clinton, wrote a book called The Mighty and the Almighty. And I have no idea where she's coming from spiritually, but she said everybody in the State Department needs to intimately know about the major world religions because they obviously drive much of foreign policy. Can you say 9-11, right? So that's interesting, and people are starting to get that. But here's the problem. The majority of religious people do not know the true God, whose purpose and program is centered on Jesus Christ. Um, there's, there's the globe again, right? Interesting stat uh, from the Pew Institute. Christianity, you, know, you can't say this because it sounds like we're bragging on Christianity. Yeah, I, I mean like at the academy you can't say this. But it's true. Christianity is the only religion that's had a significant presence, has a significant pres- presence in every continent, In contrast, adherents of other religions tend to be concentrated in relatively small geographical areas. 53% of Muslims, people who embrace Islam, live in only six countries. 81% of Jews today live in two countries. What are those two countries? Israel and the United States. Um, 50% of Buddhists live in China. 94% of Hindus live where? So... Uh, that's an interesting thing in light of the Great Commission and in light of the fact, well, golly, if God loved the world, wouldn't he get the gospel out all over the world? 
compared to everybody else, we are all over the world. And uh, if you want to know God, he's going to get the truth to you. Nobody misses heaven because of a lack of information. He will get it to you if you really want it. Okay, what have we seen? Well, handling hate. What we should know about when the world hates us, what we should know about why the world hates us. And now really quickly look at the last uh, portion of the passage here, which actually goes past the chapter division, uh, 16, 1 through 6. Uh, what we should know about why Jesus warned us about this is so we won't doubt, pout, and drop out when people at the high school or at the university or the military or your job or your neighbors say mean, nasty things about you or rude, crude, nasty toward you because of your faith. So you won't be surprised by that. And so we'll see the black background of the world as it gets blacker all the time allows us to shine our faith even more brightly in a positive way. Jesus says in verses 1 through 3, uh, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Won't doubt, pout, and drop out. You realize that 10 of the 11 believing apostles, Kyleen, were martyred in horrible ways. All 11 of them were persecuted. Um, John's the one who wasn't actively martyred, although he was, uh, as you know, uh, exiled on Patmos for a, a, a good while. Uh, they will make you, and he's talking specifically to the guys here, outcast from the synagogue. What's the synagogue? That's what, that was the center of their lives as, as uh, observant Jews. And we read it in the book of Acts, Paul especially getting kicked out of the synagogue a lot. But an hour is coming for everyone, talking about chilling, for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. Can you say, how many Methodist suicide bombers have you read about recently? How many Presbyterian uh, terror attacks have been uh, directed toward anybody? It doesn't happen. The people who are beheading folks in Afghanistan, Iraq, and northern uh, parts of Syria, western parts of Syria, they're all driven by service of God, but a counterfeit God, right? People say, well, Allah is the word for God. Isn't Allah and the God of the Bible the same thing? Uh-uh. Different character, different purpose, different program, different salvation. Just a few things like that are different. Other than that, yeah, they're exactly alike, of course. Um, these things they will do because even though they think they're doing the right thing, they have a zeal, not according to knowledge. They've not known. They have no connection with the Father or with me. And it's a two-thing deal. If you have Jesus, you have the Father. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the Father, no matter what school you've gone to or what religion you are. Uh, verse 4 through 6, But these things I've spoken to you so that when the hour comes, their hour where they're going to come and persecute you, you may remember I told you it was coming. It's not a surprise. It's, it's not a reason to doubt, pout, and drop out. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was going to be walking around with you. And again, that's the big premise of the Upper Room Discourse. I'm not going to be walking around with you anymore. You've got to do this after I go back to heaven. Now, I love this, this last little bit, because this, this because you guys are careful Bible readers, so you're going to be able to get this. This is great. But now, verse 5, I am going back to him who sent me. That's why we read the first part at the very beginning, because that's Jesus is talking about that, and John's telling you he's thinking about that. But now I'm about to go back to him who sent me, God the Father. And yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things, you're freaking out. That's my paraphrase, okay? He says, none of you ask me, where are you going? 
Now, this is the kind of thing that Richard Dawkins will use as an example of an obvious Daryl Bible contradiction. Go back to chapter 13, verse 36. But you guys are careful readers. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says. If the Bible said it's raining cats and dogs, it's not saying that small domesticated animals are falling out of clouds. That does, it means what it means. But look at 1336. Bible, Bible McNugget alert. Bible McNuggets will not help you with stuff like this. Uh, 1336, Simon Peter said to, to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Now hold it. Didn't Jesus just say, I told you I'm going, and none of you said, where are you going? And then, but Lord, just two chapters ago, we asked you, where are you going? Um, he's not talking about what Peter said. He's talking about, none of you guys are asking me a rhetorical question. I think I can explain it this way. Some of you know about my, my fond feelings for, some of you would say it's an obsession about my main man, Paul McCartney. Okay, I'm the world's biggest Christian Paul McCartney fan. I'm just telling you. I know, I know more about Paul than he knows about himself, and that's probably literally true. But um, if I were to say to you, I know Pam, Pam said, well, golly, why don't you send him an email and let, let him know how much you like him, along with 18 billion other people? He's not going to read it, you know? He doesn't care, you know? But um, if I walked up to Pam and said, and, and, and she, would, she would get this, uh, and it's not really real, but if I were to walk up to you and say, Pam, tomorrow I'm going to England because Paul McCartney is sending his private jet to take me and spend a week with him because he's a new Christian now and he wants to write a new album about his faith. And she might go, where are you going? That's what he means here. I just told you guys I'm about to go back to heaven, and none of you guys are going, where are you going? You're going back to heaven? That's, that's a deal changer. That totally changes everything, doesn't it? What they're saying is, where are you going? We want to go with you. We don't want you to leave us. You're going to go out of town? You're going to go across the river? What's the thing? He's talking rhetorically. Then you guys are excitedly saying, wow, you're really going back to heaven? Where are you going? You're going back to heaven? Shut your mouth. That's what we'd say in the South. You know? that, he's saying, I'm expecting that kind of reaction at some level. Earlier said, if you really loved me, that's the reaction you'd have. But instead, you're freaking out because you're just thinking obsessively about now and yourself. So that's what that means. Isn't that, isn't that neat to know that? You're welcome. Uh, yeah, this is about handling hate. It's a tough, tough passage. And I'm, I, you know, I can be just as paranoid as, any, as Henry Kissinger, uh, but I see a lot of icebergs out there for us. And, uh, you know, my, I told the elders this the other night. You know, my policy about weddings has been I don't marry people. I, I don't, I've only married one person, but I don't officiate it. You've got to be careful nowadays, you know. <laughs> I don't officiate at weddings for people I don't know, period, you know. And sometimes I know the bride and I don't know the groom or one or the other, but I, I don't. I, and, and you know what? People get so desperate in Duncan, they'll sometimes just randomly start calling churches and preachers. And about two or three times a year, I don't think these are homosexual activists, but until, and it will be now, but. Hi, I'm talking about Bible fellowship. Hi, do you marry people? And that's, it's like, how desperate do you have to be? <laughs> you know, call it, you know, why not warm me up? You know? And I, when they ask me stuff like that, I say, you know what? I do marry people, but I really take a personal interest in when I tie the knot. And Savannah, when I tie that thing, I tie it tight, even if we do it outside. You know, it's, it's all good. <laughs> uh, 
I just don't officiate at weddings for people I don't know because I take it personally, right? I knew you guys, right? So uh, that's always been my policy. So guess what? If Adam and Steve want to get married and they call the church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say, hey, I don't marry people I don't know. Well, you had me for, you know, I had you for speech at Cameron. Well, I don't really know you that well. No, that's, so that's what I'm going to say. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to be funny here about a serious subject. But the point is fellowship with Christ is offensive to the world. And so evangelical Christians actually believe the biblical Jesus are not going to win popularity contests in the world. But I'll end with this. Even though we're going to get increasingly virulent uh, vitriol attack, uh, uh, directed at us, it's very important that, as Chip Ingram's going to tell us in second hour, that we overcome evil with good, and we've got to be very careful about responding uh, with grace and watching the tone, and I'm bad about that. My tone can get real sarcastic more than I really want it to be. Uh, and our timing uh, needs to be very carefully chosen. There, there won't be a lot of rules for our opponents against us, but we've got to maintain a respect for other people's point of views, even if we don't like uh, some of their vocabulary words, even if we don't appreciate their vilifying us. We've got to pray that we can graciously and lovingly uh, hold on to our standards and not compromise there, but try to connect with them because... Uh, God can and often does use that long-term to do and catalyze good things in those individuals, right? So don't be surprised when uh, the world hates you. If it hated Christ, it's going to hate us to the extent we identify with him, okay? Let's have a, a word of prayer. Father, this is a very sobering portion of the word. We're so thankful that Jesus is just upfront and just uh, honest about this. Uh, we also need to be tempered by thinking, where are you going? You're going back to heaven. You're in heaven now, seated, seated at the right hand of the Father because you've done all the work of redemption. And sometime in the, in the future, in an imminent sense, you're going to come back and get the church. Yeah. So help us to, to have that heavenly perspective, which allows us to baptize the travails of the present uh, in a, in a way that uh, we can see and respond to them uh, like, like Christ wants us to. Uh, we thank you for the honor of being identified with Christ. And I pray especially for our uh, young adults and our teenagers in this room that you would uh, kind of steal their, their spiritual backbones to be willing to take the flack, to be seen as not cool, not hip, not with it, not popular, to the extent they're going to identify with Christ. I'm thankful for people uh, that, uh, I'm thinking of my man Riley, he's a football player, he's in the band, um, playing that piccolo every Friday night, and I'm playing the tuba on Saturdays, uh, and people know where he comes from spiritually, very stable guy, so I pray for uh, more of that to rub off on the rest of us, help us to realize there is a price to pay uh, in identifying with Christ in a, a fallen world that really totally misunderstands us. And so some of their attacking and some of their rejection is probably based on an untrue caricature. But I pray that uh, our response to that uh, in a hopefully controlled and calm and logical way can dispel the heat and increase the light. 
So, uh, you know, every time we walk out of these doors, we're going into the mission field, uh, and I hope uh, that we can uh, get a better feel for the way we ought to think and respond to those challenges because of passages like this one from the Scripture. So we thank you for that. I thank you for each one who is here this morning. I pray a blessing on the Word of God on each one and their families. In Christ's name, amen.